Mark chapter 14, verses 26 through 52. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly, I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking a rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And immediately while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good evening and welcome to Disciples Church. It is good to be with you this evening. Good to see you. I'm so glad that you came out to join us. My name is Jonathan Mosher, and it is my privilege and honor to get to open up the Word of God with you and for you. Uh, this evening. So turn, if you would, to Mark chapter 14. Mark 14. Since we began our study of the book of Mark, one of the things that we've talked about is the fact that Mark, as the author, is writing with the intention of bringing us face-to-face with Jesus. He wants us to get a glimpse, a snapshot, a view into the life of Christ, and he does this through all sorts of means. We see it in the miracles of Jesus, we see it in his interactions with other people, we see it as he teaches his doctrine, but we also see it through glimpses of his personality. 
So if you remember back through the book of Mark or through the course of the Gospels, we see Jesus interacting with compassion as he deals with the woman caught in adultery. We see Jesus' anger as he drives the money changers from the temple. We see Jesus in moments of contemplation as he goes off into the wilderness, away from the disciples and away from his followers and away from the crowds, just to be with his Father. We see moments of intense sadness as Jesus weeps at the death of his friend Lazarus. And as we continue in this passion narrative, we're going to get a glimpse into another piece, another element of his humanity, because in the garden narrative, we see Jesus experiencing a dark night of the soul. We see him experiencing stress on a cosmic scale. And every part of his humanity, every part of his being is about to be tested. Because just as at the cross, he suffered physically as he was tortured and ultimately killed and suffered spiritually as he took the weight of the world's sin onto his shoulders, in this text, he begins to suffer psychologically as he awaits his arrest. He begins to suffer emotionally as his most trusted friends betray and abandon him. But the most unusual thing about this text is not the actions of the disciples, it's actually the response of Jesus to the cowardly and lethargic actions that they took. And that leads us to verse 26. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Now, imagine this scene. Jesus and the disciples have finished the Passover meal, uh, which is the Last Supper. Jesus has now instituted and inaugurated the new covenant of his blood through that meal. And from that point, they head out into the streets singing. And the songs they would have been singing are are what's known as the Hallel songs. These are songs from the book of Psalms, Psalm 113 through 118, that spoke of God's love and God's victory, God's provision for his people, his wonder and his glory. And it's in this particular moment that Jesus decides, after finishing these songs, he's going to predict that his own followers, these very same disciples, are going to abandon him. These very men whom he'd been ministering alongside for the last three years of his life. These were men who knew him intimately and vice versa. These were people who Jesus had poured his life and his soul and his love into. People who had seen him perform miracles and heard him teach and and been there for every significant moment of the last three years. He tells them, understand this, you're going to fall away. And the disciples can hardly can hardly believe their ears at what it is that he just said. We just broke bread together. We just celebrated the Passover together. And in celebrating the Passover, you just pointed out that you, in fact, are the sacrificial Passover lamb, that you are the one true acceptable sacrifice, that you're the one who's going to take away the sin of the world, that you're the one who's going to establish the kingdom of God. What in the world are you talking about? We'd never abandon you. It was the last thing on their minds. And Jesus references this rather obscure Old Testament text. It comes from Zechariah 13. We'll reference it a little bit later. But this idea that once the shepherd has been struck, the sheep are going to be scattered. The moment of crisis that I'm about to endure, says Jesus, is going to cause all of you to abandon me. Now we're going to look back to verses 27 and 28 later on. But notice the response of Peter in this moment. Verse 29, Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not. So Peter hears this prediction of Jesus. He knows that that Jesus knows his own heart, but his response to Jesus in this moment is to say without any hesitation, Lord, even if the thousands who've gathered to hear you preach abandon you, I'll remain. 
if the dozens who know you and follow you fall away. I'll hold, I'll hold steady. And even if these other 11 disciples fall away, I will hold fast. Now Peter gets a lot of grief for this statement. And rightly so, to some extent. And as you begin to look at commentaries addressing this passage, almost every commentator remarks about Peter's braggadocio and arrogance in saying this. And certainly it is an arrogant thing to say. We know that. But I'm not convinced that Peter said this with any arrogant or boastful intent. That's just my read of it. But I actually don't think he intended anything boastful or arrogant in in what he said. Rather, he says all of this with complete sincerity and conviction. He meant what he was saying. He meant it to the core of his being. He was making a promise, a guarantee, that no matter what it was that was going to happen and what befell Jesus, he was going to stay by his side. With every fiber of who he was, with everything he could muster, with all the conviction that he could rally, with all the sincerity that he could work up in his heart, he was promising, I will stay. But the problem that lies at the root of our deepest sincerities and our best intentions is that they come from a broken and impotent will. See, the narrative about Peter in this text is going to demonstrate that that all of your sincerity outside of Jesus' emboldening grace cannot save you. That all your deepest conviction and devotion outside of Jesus' divine intervention cannot hold you up. That all your courage and all your bravery, apart from Jesus' power, cannot cause you to stand in the moment of trial. It's a declaration that we are completely and wholly dependent upon the life-giving, grace-motivated, world-defying presence of Christ for our confidence. That you have no hope and you have no sureness outside of that. And for all of Peter's best intentions and for all of his sincerity and all of his conviction, the problem is that in this moment he depended on his own stubborn will. He depended on his own stubborn will to stand in the moment of trial. And in the irony of what Christianity is, his outward self-reliance was the indicator of his inward self-deception. The very thing he was leaning on for his confidence in being able to stand in Christ was actually an indicator that he didn't trust Christ at all. Look at Jesus' response in verse 30. And Jesus said to him, Truly, as Dave mentioned last week, what Jesus means when he says that is you better listen. This is serious. Truly, I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. Jesus knew what it was that Peter was going to do. 
And he knew Peter was going to fall away. But rather than look for some sort of answer in Jesus in this moment of confrontation, Peter determines that he is going to prove Jesus wrong, even if it costs him his life. And for the Christian, 2,000 years removed from this incident, there is a huge lesson in this one simple phrase recorded by Mark, and they all said the same. Because if you remember last week, as we looked at the, the discussion of the Passover and the Last Supper and all of, that, all of that text, if you remember last week, Jesus prophesied in that moment that one of the disciples that was there was going to betray him. And do you remember the response of the disciples? One by one, they said, is it I? See, in that particular moment, they were aware of their own capacity for self-deception. They were aware of the sinfulness and the darkness of their own hearts. They were aware that they were broken outside of of the grace of God being poured out in their lives and their hearts. And so in that moment, in their awareness, they they begin to search inward. Am I really capable of doing that? And they're asking Jesus, please, if it's me, would you please tell me? If I'm the one that's going to abandon you, if I'm the one that's going to betray you, will you please give me an indication? Could it possibly be me? But here, the disciples get caught up in this emotional fervor. They hear the words of Peter. The words resonate with them deeply. It resonates with their, with their hearts, motivations, and their intellectual desires, and everything, everything within them that they could muster in terms of love of Jesus had been tapped in this moment. And so they all respond in this emotional way by saying, it is, all, it is true of all of us. None of us are going to abandon you. And in that moment, the disciples get caught up in the emotional fervor and they move away from serious self-examination to pious attempts at self-salvation. And here's the truth of the matter. When we neglect the holy work of grounding ourselves in Jesus, we will be tempted by the vanity of what we think we can accomplish on our own. Our temptation and our tendency as Christians is to focus infinitely on what it is we can do for Christ while forgetting first who we are in Christ. And the things we do for Christ must always be rooted in our identity in Christ. And we see the vanity of their self-salvation efforts as they head into the Garden of Gethsemane. Because in that moment, as they begin heading towards the garden, Jesus tells the disciples, I want, you to, I want you to stay awake and I want you to sit with me because what I'm about to go through is incredibly difficult and incredibly painful. And so he goes off into the garden and he takes Peter and James and John with him and he begins to pray. And as, he, as he's having these conversations with them on the way, he tells them verbally how distressed he is. He says, I am greatly distressed. And if you look at the root word that's translated distress in our Bibles, what it literally means is, I am in anguish. It's as if Jesus is being torn apart internally by what He's experiencing in this moment. But the psychological and spiritual turmoil of what He was about to experience was creating physical distress. He says it's It's as if my sorrow is so deep that I could die. My soul is sorrowful unto death. He's saying it feels like I'm about to die. 
So intense are these feelings that Jesus has. So intense are not only the emotions and and the mindset, but the spiritual taxation that's happening in this moment that he says, it's as if I'm about to perish. And the spiritual and emotional weight create a feeling of impending doom. And so Jesus begins to pray. And this amazing, amazing prayer is recorded for us. As Jesus calls out to the Father, He says, Abba, Father. And that word Abba has the idea of the way that a little child would speak to his father or his mother. You know, when you hear little kids when they're still really little and they say, Mama, Dada. Those simple two-syllable words. Abba is the same idea. Jesus is speaking here in a colloquial sense to Daddy. And out of this intimacy with His Father, He says this, Father, all things, all things are possible for You. Remove this cup from Me. Yet not what I will, but what You will. And this is the heart rending plea of Jesus to his Father. And he prays it three times. See, when he prays for the cup to be removed from him, our tendency, our assumption, is that what he's talking about is the pain of the cross itself. That Jesus knew about his his pending physical death. He knew about the brutality that he was going to experience. He knew about the mockery that was going to happen. He knew about all these physical elements and that Jesus is saying, I can't, I don't think I can handle this, so would you please allow this cup to be passed for me? But I don't think that's at all what he's indicating. But certainly that would create turmoil in the human soul. Well, what then is he praying? We need to remember who Jesus is. You see, in the eternal state, an eternity passed from, from a human expression. The Father and Jesus and the Holy Spirit had enjoyed perfect and co-equal status and communion for eternity. Spending time with one another in perfect relationship and perfect harmony and perfect fulfillment. But when Jesus became man, He submitted himself to the will of his Father and he emptied himself of his divine power and he lived in dependence on the Holy Spirit. But on the cross, Jesus would be punished for the guilt of the sin of the world. And Jesus' desire was that he not have to experience the pain of disconnectedness from his Father. You remember in the crucifixion story, Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The same God that he just called Abba, Daddy, has turned his back on the Son because your sin and mine was placed on Christ in that moment. And as you often hear us say, if the defining feature of hell is the absence of the presence and grace of the Father, then Jesus was about to experience hell on earth. But 
Jesus' interest in this moment was not primarily about his own well-being or his own status or his own comfort or even his own divine relationship with the Father. Rather, he says, not my will, but yours be done. There was a willingness to submit to the Father so that you and I might not experience And as one writer put it, in this moment, as Jesus gets the first taste of this cup, he staggers. That everything within his being has just shuddered at what he's beginning to experience. But where are his disciples? Where are these ones who are willing to go even to death with him? The ones who would never abandon him? They're asleep. While their master is sweating, as it were, great drops of blood bearing his soul before the Father in agony unto death because of their penalty that he was about to take on himself, they cannot be bothered to stay awake with him. And we listen to that, and our tendency is to view Peter as a fool, to view James and John as being ignorant. And our presumption is that had we been there, we would have done better. But lest we indulge the temptation to look at them with disdain and disgust, do you realize that we do this very same thing in our lives all the time? That we so presume the grace of God. We have such an air of entitlement about God's goodness and provision and generosity to us that we can hardly be bothered to consider our lives in light of His. That we go even farther than these disciples did by actively choosing to sin when we know that we ought not sin. And in that way, we too sleep in the presence of our suffering Savior. And in that way, we too are responsible for those nails being driven into His hands. And notice in verse 37, when the Lord confronts Peter, he calls him Simon. And that's interesting in and of itself, because all along the way, if you remember back to the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, he meets Simon, this man named Simon, and he says, I'm going to call you from this point forward, Peter. See, Simon meant hearer, listener, but Peter meant rock. And there's going to become all sorts of significance in that as we move forward. But in this very moment, Jesus reverts to calling him Simon. It was a correction, even in the use of the name. It was an indication that this rock was beginning to fall apart. And then Jesus says, the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. See, Peter in this moment wasn't operating out of the identity that Jesus had given him. He had forgotten that name. And he had forgotten its significance. And he had forgotten the source of his identity. He had begun to operate out of of all of the strength that he could muster. And as Jesus points out, the flesh inherently is weak. Now we'd expect a correction like that in a moment like this to get the attention of the disciples, but if you notice what happens next, the same thing happens two more times where they're falling asleep as Jesus is burying his soul in the garden. And as that time ends, you can, you can imagine the scene as the disciples are one, once again shaken awake and Jesus says to them, well, it's time to go. The betrayer is almost here. 
And imagine fast-forwarding to the moments after Jesus Christ's crucifixion as they're thinking back to that moment in the garden, maybe as some of us have had the opportunity sitting with someone who's on their deathbed and they're going, why in the world in that moment didn't I stay awake with him? That was my last opportunity to spend time with the lover of my soul. That was my last opportunity to commune with God incarnate. And I fell asleep. Can imagine the guilt and the shame that would have gone along with that realization. But alas, Jesus wakes them up. He says, here comes the betrayer. And while he's still talking, Judas walks up to this group of people. He approaches the twelve. He singles out Jesus. He calls him in an amazing, amazing usage of language. He has the gall to call him rabbi, respected one, leader, teacher. And he kissed him. And that kiss was the indication that Judas had given the chief priests and the scribes of whom it was that they were to arrest. The chief priests and the scribes and and their guards run in, arrest Jesus in a harsh fashion. These are the temple guards most likely who had come to arrest Jesus. They had heard him preach. They'd seen him at the temple. Perhaps they'd even had conversations with him. They knew that he wasn't a physical threat to them. And yet they come at him with swords and clubs. And more than that, with murderous intent in their heart. And in verse 47, one of Jesus' disciples, we find out in another text that that's actually Peter, grabs a sword and swings wildly at the head of one of the captors. Peter manages to cut this man's ear clean off. And according to Luke's account, Jesus reaches out and touches that man's ear and heals it instantaneously. In the moment of his unfair arrest, Jesus is still working miracles and still showing compassion. And finally, we read this in verse 48. Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I was with you in the temple teaching and you did not seize me, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. And here's the chilling verse 50. And they all left him and fled. Mere hours had gone by from their guarantees of faithfulness to them literally running away from the scene. Lord, we will stay with you. We will never leave you, even if it means our death. But in the moment of his arrest, they run. And understand, brothers and sisters, that the moments where we're tempted to forget the name that God has given us and where we're tempted to run away, those moments will come for all of us. So with that bleak scene, what then is our hope when we find ourselves beginning to drift? What is our our confidence when we begin wandering away from God, when crises create doubt and fear and worry in our hearts and our lives, when we're tempted to leave and when we're tempted to run, where do we find our hope and our confidence? I think we find the answer back in verse 27 and 28. 
just after prophesying that they were going to betray him and abandon him, here's what Jesus said to them. You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. That's amazing language right there, because what the disciples did not realize, or at least did not recognize in this moment of of Jesus' prediction, is that it was this very scattering, this very abandonment, this very rejection of Jesus that God was going to redeem to make them a people of his own possession. And we find that if we look back at the passage of Scripture that Jesus is quoting here from Zechariah 13, verse 7. I'll read it for you. Here's what it says. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. This is God himself speaking about the man who stands next to him. Who do we imagine that that might be? Jesus. And he continues, strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hand against the little ones. In the whole land, declares the Lord, two-thirds shall be cut off and perish, and one-third shall be left alive. And I will put this third into the fire and refine them as one refines silver and test them as gold is tested. They will call upon my name and I will answer them. I will say, They are my people. And they will say, the Lord is my God. See, when Jesus says, after I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee, what he's saying is there is going to come a time after your inevitable rejection and rebellion where I will redeem what you have set out to break. And when he says, after I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee, he's saying, I am not going to abandon you. I'm not going to leave you. I am going to redeem what you've broken. I'm going to use your betrayal and your abandonment of me, not just as a cautionary tale, but as a demonstration of my long-suffering and my love for those who are mine. And it's amazing that he says, I will go before you to Galilee. He's saying, I'm going to meet you back where we started. And in meeting you once again, I'm going to inaugurate a whole new era of life and ministry for you. See, there is a confidence in the Lord that often only comes through hardship. There is a certainty in the goodness of God that can only be gained by walking through the dark night of the soul. And ironically, it's in the moment of our deepest distress and our heaviest shame when we feel that our prayers don't get past the ceiling and that God is nowhere to be found, that He is actually closest at hand. It's what Paul said in Acts 17 when he stated that God has ordained the timing and the circumstances of our life so so that we should seek God and perhaps feel our way toward Him and find Him. Yet He is actually not far from each one of us. That in the moment of darkness when it feels like we're grasping and 
groping our way through life, trying to find some sort of sanity and some sort of salvation and some sort of steadfastness, that it's actually in that moment that God is closest at hand, that the actual circumstances of our life have been ordained in such a way to reveal to us our deepest need of who God actually is. And so for Peter, in this moment, though he was wandering, Jesus was saying, I am still going to stick close. And I'm going to refine you. And you're going to be my people. See, though we doubt, Jesus remains faithful. And how do we know that's true? Well, consider the very text that we're studying. It's a common phrase that we hear that the winners write the history books. And usually what people mean when they say that is that the, the people who win wars or win battles or all of the sorts of things have a tendency to portray themselves in the best possible light. But notice this strange tag at the end of the text. Verse 51, And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. Now it's a strange text because we're not given any indication as to who this is and there's nothing else ever said about this individual. But church tradition tells us that this young follower of Jesus who literally ran in order to avoid being arrested and ran so quickly that he left his clothes behind him was Mark himself. And remember who it is that's providing the source material for what it is that Mark's writing here? It's Peter. Peter would find redemption in the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. And rather than whitewash his doubt and ignore his abandonment, he puts it on display for you and me. See, in Jesus' goodness, he did not allow the cowardly decisions of Mark and of Peter to lead to their ruin, but graciously gave them redemption. When we fall, Jesus brings forgiveness. You see, our hope is not in our accomplishment. It's not in our goodness. It's not in our devotion. It's not in our sincerity, because our flesh inherently is weak. No, our hope is in the fact that we serve a Savior who delights in showing His strength through our weaknesses. That we have a God who delights in using the failures and the losers and the screw-ups and the cowards so that we can look at sleeping Peter and fearful Mark and be absolutely confident that our salvation rests entirely in Jesus' accomplishments, in His faithfulness, in His goodness, and in His devotion to us. And when we rest secure in what it is that He's done, and when we recognize what it is that He's called us to do, we can faithfully obey because He's proved Himself over and over again. The promise of this text for you and for me 2,000 years later is that though we fail, Jesus never does. 
He is the hero of the story. He is the savior of the world. He is the Lord who makes and keeps promises. Even when we don't deserve it. And that ought to create all kinds of confidence and boldness and humility in our hearts as we seek to faithfully obey what it is that he's called us to do. Would you pray with me? Lord God, I thank you for the example that we find in Mark. This fearful young man who literally runs away naked for fear of being arrested. We thank you for the example of Peter, who after bold promises, abandons Christ and falls asleep in Jesus' most desperate human moment. We thank you that through these stories we get a glimpse of your patience and your faithfulness and your love for us. That though we are tempted and though we give in to temptation, that it is you who begins a work in us and that it is you who brings that work to completion. So God, we pray that in realizing your faithfulness to us and your devotion to us and your goodness to us, God, we pray that that would create all kinds of strength and boldness in our lives. To be people who are of, of humble reputation, as Peter is in this moment, sharing the story of his own abandonment to Mark. Would we be people of confidence to faithfully live out and obey what it is you've called us to do in the places that you have ordained for us. In the places that we live, work, and play. That you have given us a ministry and a responsibility and given us everything we need to be faithful to that. So Lord, help us to trust in your goodness and your grace. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.